This week as I was preparing for uh, Sunday, I realized that I've been the new guy in congregations for about the past six years. Because when I was in seminary, uh, my seminary church uh, asked me to preach a good bit. And so every year I got the Sunday after Easter to preach. And I was worried that I wouldn't be able to find anything new to say about Thomas this week, but I had a thought about Thomas because I was on vacation this week with a group of friends. And, and you know, in every group of friends, there's one person who, in the midst of a difficult or awkward conversation, will look at everyone and go, okay, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you may be in here right now. And... That's the person who will make everyone listen to the hard truth of the situation or will voice the doubts that no one else will voice. And I think that Thomas is, is that person. And he does voice honest doubts that no one else will voice. And you know, let's face it, the disciples have not been putting on a brave face after Jesus' death. John says that the doors of the room were locked for fear of the Jews, for fear of the Jewish authorities, really. When you think about Thomas, I wondered this week what it was he was doing when he was not in the room. I mean, Thomas unlocked the door and went out into the marketplace. He went out into the world. He probably went out to get supplies or, or to ask around and to see what was going on. But Thomas went out. He went out beyond that locked door. Thomas has the fortitude to get out. He has the courage to see what is going on in the world. He's been walking around in the city of Jerusalem, which, let's face it, was a place that was probably mightily unaffected a couple of days after Jesus' death, a place that was indifferent to the death of this teacher, this rather common man, this Jesus, this Yeshua. He didn't see any grief on the faces of the people in the square. He, he might have heard some talk of, of Jesus, but it was probably uh, a relieved talk of people who relieved that the Romans weren't going to come storming in and killing them all to avert revolution. And then he comes back to this room full of very happy people. I mean, he leaves a funeral awake and he comes back and there's an after party. He left a group of terrified survivors and he comes back to a room filled with jubilant followers of Christ. I mean, no wonder he questions their sanity at having seen Jesus. He probably thinks that they've undergone some kind of collective psychosis in their grief. So no wonder he wants to see Jesus before he believes this has happened. I mean, he's the first to have been out in the world, which is a place where... Jesus is, for most people, decidedly not. I mean, any sane person in that situation would want to see Jesus before believing that he had been resurrected. Because resurrection is weird. Resurrection is scary. Resurrection just does not happen in a world without Jesus. He must be thinking this world beyond the locked door. And I think Thomas knows this. He knows... And I think he knows somewhere, and I think he's the first of all the disciples to realize the hard truth that if resurrection has really happened, 
then the whole order of creation has been turned on its head. So we too are wise to struggle with resurrection on this Sunday that we Episcopalians affectionately call Low Sunday. It's a pause after the party. It's a a silence after the commotion. And we who must walk around in the world after Easter, which is all of us, we can't help notice the indifference, the contradictions that we see out there to resurrection. Show me, we demand at the end of a long and difficult day. Show me, we say when we read the headlines. Show me, we say in the midst of our own tragedies, big and small. One summer I worked in a place where regularly we were saying to each other, show me the resurrection. Um, I was a chaplain at Atlanta Medical Center over on Boulevard, which used to be called uh, Georgia Baptist Center. And I worked on a floor, uh, the neurological ICU, where the patients were many times people who had had fatal strokes or fatal head injuries or brain injuries or or brain infections, gunshot wounds. And frequently they they did not do very well and they died. And and many times they had these stickers on their charts that said A and D, which uh, means allow for natural death. We had a a patient who came in at the beginning of one week, and I'll call her Cherie, and Cherie was in a coma, and she was dying of complications from AIDS, and a bacterial infection had gotten into her bloodstream and gone to her brain and the rest of her body, and she had an orange A and D chart sticker on her chart. And I'd go by and talk to her nurse. The nurse, when I looked at the chart, would just kind of cluck and say, oh, it's just a matter of time when I ask her how she was. And so we all made a habit of stopping by her room when we could. Other chaplains would come down to the floor and stop by her room because we couldn't notice how alone she was. We didn't see much family come in, um, and she was going to die soon. And so after about a week or so, we noticed she kept getting steadily worse as we thought she would. And so uh, one Friday, because I was off on the weekends, I I decided to go down with my little green book with the prayers for the sick and the dying and to give her a good Episcopalian send-off and pray the last rites for her. I came back on Monday morning expecting to see her bed vacated. And I saw Cherie sitting up in bed, many of the tubes unhooked from her body, eating a breakfast of grits and eggs and bacon. And I went in and I I said hello to her and introduced myself. And she said, she said, you're chaplain, Tim, you're, you're that young man who came in and prayed for me on Friday, aren't you? And I laughed and I said, yeah. And she, she kind of looked at me with a crooked smile and she said, well, I guess your prayers backfired, didn't they? And I wish I could say that the story continues to be happy, but that Cherie got up out of bed like Lazarus and walked around, but unfortunately she did not. But she had about a 10-day period where uh, a lot of resurrection happened. Her mom, we finally found her mom, and her mom came down to see her, and, and the other chaplains, uh, some of the other chaplains, some of the, the residents who were going to be there all year, refereed several fights between uh, Cherie and her mom. And her children came down. She had four children, and her children, all of them, came to town to tell her goodbye. And she even got to pick the clothes for her funeral and decide where her funeral was going to be. 
And this former heroin addict and prostitute got to be a mother and a daughter, if only for a few days, and then a few days later die with some dignity. And it'd be easy for us to shake our heads and say, what a waste, you know, Cherie just died. But as followers of Christ, we're called to notice when resurrection happens like it did with Cherie and for her family and for the love that was present between them on her last days. So perhaps we can learn from Thomas today that we're not only supposed to notice when resurrection happens, but we're also supposed to have good and valid questions to ask about it. And let's take this even further then. You know, we're not just supposed to have good and valid questions, but aren't we called to proclaim it loudly when it happens? Are we not called then to see Christ's wounds in in the people in the marketplace outside the doors of the locked room, to see Christ resurrected in the wounded and in the lonely and in the dying? And aren't we then called to upend death with our time and our money and our cultural power as educated and relatively speaking compared to the rest of the world, extremely wealthy folk, feeding the poor, healing the sick, empowering the powerless among us, thereby making resurrection happen right now and all around us. Not only that, but but are we also called to remind other people, even when they might not believe it, even when we might not believe it either, that resurrection is not just a special, occasional, once-a-year Hollywood kind of thing but is a state in which we live, a reality that is happening now and will continue happening now that Christ is risen. And then finally, if we are called to do anything in our work as Christ followers, I believe that we are called to sing out loudly to a broken world seemingly obsessed with death, Yet even at the grave, we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. See, resurrection is not an easy thing for Thomas, and it should not be an easy thing for anyone. But Thomas is our kindred spirit, and Thomas embodies our hope. Be like Thomas during the great 50 days of Easter and beyond. Leave the locked doors. Get out. Walk around in this city, in this world. Bump into folks in the marketplace, in this world that is seemingly unaffected by resurrection. And be like Thomas and search the wounds of Christ, not, but not in a quiet room, but out there. Then, good people, resurrection happens not only on Easter, but all the time all around us. Thanks be to God.